I think where Keynesians get it really wrong is they have that like metaphor of like the market is an engine and if we just, you know, pump more money in it, it's like oil, it's gonna make it run better. It's like no no what you're actually what you're actually doing is the market is this calculator and if you throw in money, if you print money out of thin air, it's almost like every individual calculator that every entrepreneur has, you're like randomly adding and subtracting numbers. Like you're just making it more confusing. Fiat currency is a public good. It's not private property, right? It's, it's a socialized property. You can't, you can't fully control it. And it's, it's always incurring this counterparty risk of um, the central bank counterfeiting more of it and basically milking you of purchasing power. If you care about your financial future, you need to check out a couple of our offerings, including Swan IRA and Swan Private. Swan Private is our white glove concierge service where you get a trusted partner on your Bitcoin journey. We offer all kinds of education and research projects, as well as exclusive events to our Swan Private customers. Check it out today at swan.com slash private. Also, Swan IRA. Swan IRA is the best way to gain exposure to real Bitcoin in a tax advantage account like a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, or rolling over your 401k. So if that interests you, check it out at swan.com slash IRA today. What's up, Sats fans? Welcome to Swan Signal. We got a really special episode for you guys today. We got the one and only Robert Breedlove. He is the host of the popular What Is Money show, and he is also a very prominent writer in the Bitcoin scene. Uh, what's up, Robert? How you doing, man? What's up, Sam? Uh, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'm, I'm super excited to have this conversation with you today. I've been reading your stuff for many years, and um, I thought maybe we'd start today's conversation with talking about what has transpired in the traditional banking system over the last month. I mean, there's been a ton of instability there. Uh, there's been bank runs. There's been the Treasury and the Fed coming in to, quote-unquote, save the day. Um and you know, right now things are starting to calm down, but it's still not really over. So I was wondering maybe if you could just, what are some of your major takeaways from what just happened over the last month? I mean, it's been a pretty crazy time. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised by any of it in the least, to be frank. Um, I think it's just another case of fractional reserve banking failing uh, in real time. It does seem a little like when I see the some of the back and forth between Janet Yellen and some local senators and whatnot um, on the Senate floor, it seems like there's um, kind of a controlled demolition going on. Like the, the one big impediment between the implementation where we are today and the implementation of a CBDC is the commercial banking sector, right? Like mm. The, the CBDC would basically white it would obviate the need for commercial banking entirely. Everyone would just have a, an account directly with the Fed. So it's kind of interesting to me that you know one they've hiked rates, so that's uh, you're actually getting giving depositors a big incentive to move their deposits into either large banks or you know treasury bonds, things like this. Uh, well, specifically treasury bonds to get the yield, and then two the like Janet Yellen and the, and these others are sort of representing that okay, the big banks will always be have all their deposits guaranteed, but the smaller commercial banks, it's less certain whether they'll have their deposits guaranteed. So they're like making the commercial banking system out to be much more risky, which is, I guess, incentivizing depositors to move into big banks or into treasuries. Uh, 
And um, it feels like kind of a controlled demolition, right? If you can wipe out the commercial banking sector or create a lot of doom and gloom, um, you could set the stage for um, the rollout of a CBDC in a way that's introduced as a solution to the problem that, of course, they themselves create. So it just it just feels like a lot of central bank bullshit going on in the world. <laughs> and um, if people just understood that Bitcoin is a full reserve bank, that's, I mean, that's all you really need to know, right? Like the Fed w- disallows Custodia Bank from coming on the scene because they're a full reserve bank and that threatens the business model of all fractional reserve banks. Um, the same reason the Fed disallows Custodia uh, to have a banking charter is the same reason they're so deathly afraid of Bitcoin. All right, people, there's a natural demand for full reserve, low risk banking, obviously. Um, but the fractional reserve paradigm that we're in uh, has prevented people from having access to that for a long time. So thankfully we have Bitcoin. Thankfully we have Bitcoin. Turdemeester, welcome. How are you? I, we just asked the first question. I was just kind of asking major takeaways from what transpired uh, with the banking system over the last month or so. There's just been so much instability. And maybe you could just share some of your thoughts around that. I mean, I guess to me, the major takeaway is, you know, QE Infinity is back on. Like we're back in money printing mode as if I mean, we were in denial about it for a while or some people were like getting worried. Like, are we actually going to see a massive slowdown and interest rates like grinding much, much higher, like in the early 80s? And but if you think it through, that means governments are going to go bankrupt and and, and all the banks are going to go under. And so, of course, that's not. That's not allowed. Um, and so what is it? What is Bitcoin today at 30,000 or something? I mean, I think that's just uh, it's 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 a sign that the market is understanding what this means, like these these bailouts, like no matter, you know, how, how it's actually done. Uh, the fact that you could argue that what is it like seven trillion dollars was created out of thin air because of that massive promise all of a sudden, like, hey, we're going to. You know, if you're a depositor with a small bank, don't worry about it. Well, that's that's a huge promise. Like that's, mm. you know, the FDIC only has, I forget the exact number, but it's like not not a trillion in reserves, like far from it. So they don't have the funds. And so the the government's stepping up and, and yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm not I'm not responding very briefly. But the major takeaway to me is like, you know, Money printer goes burr is is back and it's back with a vengeance. Printer is coming. Printer is coming. Printer is exactly. coming. Well, Freelove, you brought up like fractional reserve banking is kind of the underlying cause of all this, and how they won't allow a full reserve bank uh, because it's almost too safe, right? They're like, oh, mm-hmm. well, that will pull funds from these more unstable banks that are doing fractional reserve banking. And so, Tur, I know that you went back and forth about some of your thoughts around fractional reserve banking. And maybe you guys can discuss kind of why that is a scam <laughs> for lack of a better word. Yeah, man. And to, to Robert's point, it's true. You know, like if, if you can keep everyone in the fractional reserve system, then it's like, well, you kind of go from one bad bank to the next and, and, but at least people stay in the system. 
And that's how you prevent, you know, a Ponzi from collapsing is you keep everyone inside. But then if there is an escape hatch all of a sudden, and that's like a black hole and it can just suck everything away. Um, and, 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 but it does seem like the natural next step is going to be um, government bonds. Like people are going to, it's almost like, <laughs> it's almost like they're, they're like eavesdropping on crypto and they're like, oh, the Ethereum guys, like they, they have this thing like proof of stake, like, ooh, like perpetual income. It's kind of like the next step to to keep people in the system. Like, what if we have inflation, but then at the same time we're paying out like a dividend? And so, you know, if everyone gets suckered into short-term government bonds, then you could just call that a new currency. Like that—that's you know that that's um, could be the next step in this this uh, inflationary uh, you know slow motion car crash. Yeah, I agree. I think just to point out something because we often um talk about fractional reserve banking as if it's definitively a scam i just want to be clear like it's not necessarily like if you put your money on deposit with a bank and you sign a contract that they can lend it out at whatever reserve ratio you you expect and assume and take on that risk that it can be a consensual market transaction i just don't think most people and and actually like the current T's and C's when you set up a bank account, you don't own any of the money you put in that bank account. As far as I know, it's a creditor uh, debtor relationship, right? The bank owes you that money. doesn't mean that they can default, right? The counterparty can fail. They can default. Presumably the FDIC is there to pick up the pieces, but I think they hold somewhere in the neighborhood of like 1% of the assets that they purport to cover. So that's Either that's going to be a whole lot of money printing in the case we need to engage with the FDIC, or it's just not going to work. Um, so the with fractional reserve banking, it's kind of like the devil in the details thing, where if you're putting your money on deposit with a bank or a warehouse or custodian of any kind, and the contract says they're going to hold your money right and not relend it, that they're going to be a full reserve bank, then that's what you would expect them to do. Um, but as far as I know, that again, like Custodia Bank, Narrow Bank, these these operations that wanted to launch Full Reserve and even Full Reserve Plus, I think Custodia was going to hold a dollar eight in cash for every dollar on deposit. And so it's like beyond a Full Reserve Bank. Um, as far as I know, none of those options exist for people because of what we just said. Like it would suck money out of fractional reserve banks into these Full Reserve banks. So it's basically a Ponzi scheme, right? You're just trying to keep the Ponzi going as long as possible by keeping people in the system. And in that way, it is kind of tantamount to proof of stake. I've actually said before, I mean, it's a rough analogy, I guess, but our existing system was gold proof of work money. And then we built proof of stake central banking on top of it, right? Whoever can stake the most gold can have the most influence on the rules and whatnot. Um, I think that's basically what we're trying to do again here is just, um, engage this proof of stake model. Um, they're probably going to bait people in to the CBDC implementation with UBI. I think that would be a, a natural next step. It's like, you know, you've got this long of a time period to convert your physical dollars into digital dollars and your commercial bank dollars into central bank dollars. And, that would be kind of the stick. And then maybe the carrot would be once you convert, you start getting UBI to the tune of X thousand a month paid in CBDC. So, I, I mean, 
again, my conspiracy theory hat is on tight always these days, but it certainly feels like they're trying to corral depositors into this new model of just total centralized control. Right. And throughout history, I mean, in periods of high inflation, that's what happens, right? They try to entrap people in the system um, because if people flee the system and flee the currency, that just kind of worsens their problems. Mm-hmm. And right now we have like examples of that all over the place, like the Australian central banks uh, are ending cash withdrawals. Christine Lagarde came on recently in an interview saying that all euro transactions above 1000 should land somebody in jail. Um, and so is that what the future you guys expect to see just increase capital controls, um, increase restrictions. And how does that fit in with the world where we have Bitcoin? Like it's hard for me to see how any of that works um, as people kind of wake up to the idea of Bitcoin. Maybe Terry, you could jump on that. Yeah, I mean, I think Argentina has the playbook for us. I mean, they, uh, 2001, they had bank runs. People stood in line to get get their money out. And uh, the government launched this program, um, you know, in English, it's called a bank holiday. Over there, they called it Corralito, which is like, we're going to corral the cattle. And it's like, but it's like a little, it's a little corral. It's Corralito. So it's kind of, it's kind of cute. <laughs> We're corralling all the funds together and, uh, you know, it's a public good, which, of course, that's the implication. Fiat money is, a, weirdly, it's a public good. It's not really your own money. Um, and then people can um, have, you know, um, very tiny amounts of access to that money, which is, of course, I mean, the reason why people are running on the bank in the first place is because the value of the money is crashing. Like, there's a, there's a, there's a discrepancy between what the government says it's worth and what the market is valuing it at. And, and at some point something's got to give and you've got to devalue as a government. Um, and we've seen that in the, in the crypto space where like all these stable coins, like, Oh, it's pegged at this, you know, it's like, what, what do they call it? Like a um, algorithmic um, stable coin. Algorithmic peg. Like, yeah, that's just, you know, gobbledygook like that. That's not, that's not actually backed. Um, so yeah, I mean, to me that that's, that's, you know, there's going to be more panics and, and more heavy handed attempts to try and control things. Um, and of course, finger pointing, you know, people are going to find scapegoats and blame the people that like us here are talking about the fragility of the system. They're going to, you know, try and shoot the pianist and say like, oh, these guys were, you know, irresponsible for calling, you know, they called for a bank run or something like that. Um and so, yeah, I mean, and, and so weirdly, Bitcoin is going to kind of, it's going to be a bit awkward, right? To, to have Bitcoin in the room while all this is going on. If you're, if you're not acknowledging it as an actual backup financial system, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of embarrassing at some point. You know, of course, they're going to point at Bitcoin is so volatile and you shouldn't trust it. And, and uh, maybe like rogue nations use it, right? There'll be all kinds of rhetorical you know they have they have they're gonna have a big bag of tricks uh but i think ultimately the way it's gonna pan out is the market is gonna choose um bitcoin as one of the ways to store value um in in this kind of inflationary depression uh and thank god it's there i mean i I, i've said this before like I, i was very pessimistic on the global financial system 10 15 years ago because i thought we were gonna get stuck in this Latin American loop of like every 10 years, you have an inflationary 
you know, crisis and there's there's a bout of hyperinflation and then you go back to normal, like 20% inflation. That was my worry for the next, like, you know, 60 years or so. And so Bitcoin is just a, is really a godsend. It's it's incredible that it's here. And it's incredible. We, we've had 14 years of building to get it ready for, I mean, I think the 2020s is when it's going to happen. Uh, you know, I don't know when exactly, but we're going to see... We've seen 20% inflation already. I think we're going to see spikes of 50, 100% higher in the West. Yeah, I I agree, man. Uh, it's so much... Uh, w- w- the term shifting from a unipolar world to a multipolar world, right? Where there's not going to be this uniform reservation demand for the dollar. Like we're hearing about the BRICS countries now trying to create their own currency block to whatever extent that's successful that just reduces reservation demand for the dollar right which means you have to accelerate printing even more to keep covering and servicing the national debt for instance in addition to imports and everything else so i just think i see the world ripping itself apart and if you study the history of hyperinflations that's usually what happens right like things get really scarce and people start to become more insular um, and we're just seeing that on a kind of a global scale, which I don't think we've ever seen before. Um, and I think too, that, you know, because we're in the digital age, the pace at which information moves, the liquidity of ideas is just so much faster. These bank runs now aren't even bank runs, right? They're API driven inflows and outflows. And, um, I forget the numbers for SVB, but it was like billions overnight right it was like yeah what i heard was like 42 billion dollars withdrawn in one day yeah so wow. what that's not a run right there's not people going to a teller window to re- withdraw that that's you know it's a digital financial movements basically so i would expect that the fragility and the bank runs would just be they would materialize faster um and you know this whole thing about restricting transactions to you know to lock people into the system restricting cash transactions or cash withdrawals such a slap in the face right that you're telling people they can only transact or take out a thousand dollars per day or a thousand euros per day while at the same time the purchasing power of a thousand euros is collapsing right to the tune of 20 percent 50 percent a year or whatever it may be um and it just gets to that to tour's earlier point that fiat currency is a public good it's not private property right it's it's a socialized property you can't you can't fully control it and it's it's always incurring this counterparty risk of um the central bank counterfeiting more of it and basically milking you of purchasing power so i mean it's just i guess this is the bad thing about getting into bitcoin is you start seeing the world for what it is and it's just kind of nasty and scammy full of platitudes and bullshit to try and smooth it over and you see these like central bank commercials where some little intern talking about how trusted the ecb is and how they're preserving the monetary integrity of the euro and looking out for your best interests and it just makes you kind of sick honestly over time and um I don't know. I would expect all of that to get worse in the years ahead because people are going to be feeling the pain. So I'm sure 
the propaganda machine will be rushing to probably blame Bitcoin. Actually, I'm sure Bitcoin will ultimately get blamed um, as this system continues to unwind. There, there, it would be just such a two birds with one stone move to just blame Bitcoin, which is the solution to the problem for causing the problems that you yourself as a central bank caused. Um, I think it'll, we'll end up there and I don't know, I guess we've got a lot of clown world left in front of us. Well, there's like a Tura, I think you called it inflation denialism. It is a slap <laughs> in the face for the, the central bankers. You know, the ECB was blaming the inflation on, um, wage pressures and then the bank of england said money printing doesn't cause inflation it reminds me of the stories from weimar germany where those central bankers refused to believe that their policies were actually causing any of the inflation and we're kind of seeing the same thing today so do you think they're just doing this because they publicly can't admit that their policies that they have to keep doing is actually causing the rising cost of living or do you think it's even maybe a scarier possibility that they've just drank the keynesian kool-aid you know, so much of it and believe that it's not possible that their policies are causing the inflation. Like, it's hard for me to understand because it seems so obvious that they are inflating the supply of fiat currencies and that is contributing to the inflation, but they just refuse to uh, attribute it at all to their policies. I have some thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, like, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Like, and and I remember Saifedean telling me about how he was like working on the fiat standard and and kind of like explaining the first and it was the first time I heard that that approach basically trying to really understand like how did the fiat system come about and 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 acknowledging that there were some issues with the gold standard you know there was so much gold being confiscated and 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 the world was increasingly globalized and and then slowly. You actually had digit, digital information going around and trade happening, and, and, and you know, I guess initially with the facts, and, and so basically, like you know, through the air, like you know, lightning fast uh, communication. So it does make sense that there was a need for a new kind of paradigm, and I think that the you know, generally speaking, the 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 basis of of the fiat system was this idea of like consensus like we're gonna sit together like you know the real elites the financial elites and we're gonna kind of create this system where we get to a political consensus of like how do we want to do this and then if there's problems we'll fix them and so so you know if like from an engineering point of view you could look at it and then say like well they they tried to build a new system but they incurred a lot of technical debt like they basically got the footing kind of wrong mm -hmm. Um, and, and you can go back and kind of, you know, understand why that was like it, it, it was, you know, I mean, when it was devised was like in between two world wars, like, you know, that's not ideal in terms of circumstances. Well, no, I guess technically it was, um, sorry, 1913, of course, is, is just before the first world war. But so that means that there were already tensions building up, um, and, uh, and then the way things were administered, especially if you go forward with the IMF and the BIS and, 
you know, those were just, you know, additional mechanisms to try and uh, control this, this, um, this monster that they were creating, which at the time they thought it was a great thing, you know. I mean, that's probably how all monsters get started. They're, you know, cute little babies. And so I think the way I interpret things now is just like, there's just people and it's a generational thing by now, like their families, their whatever, the, the elite school they went to have totally bought into this consensus paradigm. Like, you know, and we see it in, in the crypto space as well, like social consensus, this like magical thing that it's true. Like theoretically, consensus is a valid way to avoid conflict. We sit together, we work it out, and then we we have a uniform way of communicating it and implementing it. So, so from that point of view, I don't think these people are evil. I think they just kind of think that this is, this is all we got. And so we just have to, and if it means we're going to lie to the public, if that allows us to kind of maintain consensus, that's what we got to do. And, and so I, I do believe that they lie knowingly. I, I do believe that. Um, and that they, they are just their social circles they have all kinds of taboos when it comes to particular other paradigms. It's almost like heresy, right? If you if you're in a Keynesian lineage and you're gonna all of a sudden become an Austrian, I don't know. You're probably gonna get excommunicated somehow. So I don't know. I'm I'm not saying that it's gonna be a fun ride, but I that's kind of how I look at. You know, it's a paradigm clash, and and probably just like with how science progresses, like one funeral at a time. Mm-hmm. Like we're not gonna convince these people. Um, it's it's going to be a very slow iterative process, and of course the wealth transfer is going to is going to speed things up a lot. Like their their influence in the world is going to probably diminish uh, as as more and more of the world is is moving to a hard money standard. Mm. Yeah, I think that, I mean Bitcoiners can probably relate to this too. I just the the immense social pressure there is to. You know, inside of Bitcoin circles, like thou shall not shitcoin, right? That's kind of the social pressure you feel in Bitcoin maximalism. But imagine how much more social pressure there is when you, you're running a central bank. You, you know, you're academically came up in a, with a Keynesian education. All your mentors came up of the same ilk. All the trajectory of history, right? Like this thing's been around for 110 plus years, all based on this core ideology. Like, you can, even if you wanted, even if you were diehard, you could like look at Greenspan, right? Greenspan was basically libertarian before he sold his soul to the Fed, right? He's got that great piece that he wrote saying that a sound store value has to be made illegal for a welfare and warfare state to work, right? Like it to to implement welfare warfare policy requires that citizens don't have access to a sound savings device, right? He was like diehard libertarian in his early years and then what did he become like darth vader of the fed just lying about everything to to make it pass so you know i don't i i agree i don't think it's this notion of like a centralized conspiracy of a bunch of guys sitting around in a room smoking cigars and you know how are we going to crash the world economy and plunder as much as we can on the way down it's more like what you're saying um uh, I had a guest on Ed Dowd actually. He called it a meta fraud. So instead of it being like an actual conscious fraud, it's more about broken incentives and opportunists taking advantage of those broken incentives and breaking them further over time, right? Um, it, it reminds me too of that old quote. I, I'll paraphrase it. It's like something, 
it's really hard for a man to understand something that his paycheck depends on him not understanding, right? Like they are benefiting. When I say they, I mean like the the shareholders of central banks, right? The cartel bosses of the Jerome Powells and these other figureheads that we see, they profit immensely from senior rich. Um, so not only is like is it in their profit interest, it's it's in their ideology that printing money. You know, again, they think rather than production preceding consumption, as it does in economic reality, they somehow think that consumption, the tail can wag the doll dog, right? That you can increase consumption through monetary policy, which will drive production. Total bullshit. We all know it, but they believe that, right? They believe that to their core. It's, it's, it's central to the entire Keynesian ideology. And, um, I think that's just it, right? It's like almost, and this is something I try to articulate. I, I say that there's a great quote, human nature is like water. It takes the shape of its container. I think the containers that we pour ourselves into are incentive structures, basically. And so when I look out on the world, I see a lot of people moving themselves in pursuit of money most of the time. So I think incentives are like one of the primary drivers or motivators of human action. And when you have an incentive system that's, let me just get as close to the money spigot as possible at all cost, right? To damned if I'm adding any value to society or not. It just creates these conditions where um, non-productive actors are rewarded, right? Political, um, you know, people engaging in espionage and uh, intrigue and the art politic, warfare, like all these things get rewarded in a fiat paradigm. And so is it any fucking surprise that the world is awash in people like this and activities like this? Um and maybe, you know, admittedly, it's probably not that simple, but I think it's, we can do humanity a great service by swapping out the base layer of incentives, right? To move away from uh, people moving in pursuit of fiat currency to people moving in pursuit of hard money. It just makes, it just rewards productive, peaceful, cooperative behavior. And if you want a world that reflects those characteristics, then you have to reward it. So... Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And and there's another dimension, or at least I think it's just another way of looking at exactly what you're talking about is um, I was thinking about that recent Bernie Madoff documentary. Um, I think it's on Netflix. Yeah. It's like three parts, I think, mm-hmm. um, which is really cool. Like they really go into the nitty gritty of how things worked. And, um, and, and, and what struck me is that how stuck he was you know and how like really in this paradigm because not only was he you know in order to continue in order to kind of you know not go to jail and just kind of be a father to his family and whatnot he had to continue the ponzi Mm -hmm. but then additionally his entire social network were dependent they were all dependent on him and of course a bunch of them had serious, I mean, knew what was going on basically and and knew what not to ask, you know, they were just like, uh, but so he had very powerful people who were dependent on him. And so, and that's why he feared for his life. Like once he went to jail, he was afraid that they were going to come after him. And so I'm not saying exactly that the the exact, you know, same type of people, Mm -hmm. but similar dynamics are happening, I believe 
in the central banking world. Like, you know, Wall Street to a large extent is dependent on these bailouts, is dependent on stimulus, is dependent on information about when the stimulus might happen. That's why there's this revolving door between these institutions. So again, I'm not saying there's like one evil conspiracy, but it's more like people are trapped in these incentive systems Mm -hmm. after a whole career. Like, what are you going to do? Come out and say, I'm sorry. I mean, you're only going to come out and say, I messed up if everything is exploding already. But like, as long as things are kind of going, you know, you you have a family to look after. There's charities that you're donating to. I mean, whatever, you know, it's just the older people get, it seems like the more they can really get stuck in certain ways of life. And, uh, and, and so that's why I never really believed in politics, like, you know, in political, you know, action. If the incentive structure is, is, wonky and weird and 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 inefficient then you just have to build something new that has something better to offer Mm -hmm. and that's why i like the cypherpunk so much yeah i couldn't agree more it's very much like being caught in a lie right they basically are caught in a lie that keynesian economics Mm -hmm. is total horseshit (laughs) but they have to keep pretending like it's real right like oh we'll just print a few more dollars and um whereas the you know, if you're actually caught in a lie, well, what can you do? You can keep spinning up new fictions to overlay the old fiction. And before you know it, you're like lost in this web of deception, or you can just tell the truth. Right. And you're just, it's like, what's that saying that it's sour in the beginning, but sweet at the end, if you're telling the truth, but if you're telling a lie, it's sweet at the beginning, but sour at the end, something like that. And they've just kicked the can so far down the road that things are just so unbelievably sour now. That again, thank God we have Bitcoin as a source of truth that's hopefully going to contribute to the dissolution of all this mess. Yeah, like Havenstein is a good example. I, I need to read up on it again, but uh, he was the you know chairman of the central bank during the Weimar Republic, and he died. Like I think he had like a heart attack or something like one or two years after the currency collapsed. You know, it just goes to show like these things. This is very, very sour. Mm-hmm. You know, it's extremely stressful to live through the the culmination of, of um, I mean, the Ponzi scheme collapsing, basically. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Ponzi scheme or of central banking in general kind of depends on ignorance, right? Of like mm-hmm. financial literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now, over the last like five years, I feel like people are starting to wake up a little bit. Maybe I'm just in an echo chamber. I don't know. But it seems like even like the term fiat, like my my normie friends know what that means now. And they had never even heard the term like five years ago. And it just seems like the social media and the internet has allowed people to learn more about central banking. And so is that what you guys are seeing too? And like, if, if do you see one day soon, people are going to finally wake up and realize like they are being harmed by these policies and these central banks through their inflationary mm. policies. Um, yeah, I, I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right, right? A, an, a necessary ingredient of the fiat currency complex is a generalized financial illiteracy. No question about it, because if people understood, if people understood what money and full reserve versus fractional reserve banking is now like we'd probably go straight into hyper bitcoinization right everyone'd be like oh no shit like <laughs> of course obviously i should move on my purchasing power over here where no one can steal it or mess with it or manipulate it um as far as people waking up yeah i, I mean i sense there's been an awakening since covid 
which I guess is just the reality of the pains of government oppression and uh, economic manipulation and whatnot. You know, a lot of my normie friends are now much more tinfoil hat than they ever were. Um, you could just chalk that up to the conspiracy theorist win streak, I guess, over the past few years. Like at some point you're going to change teams, right? If your team just keeps taking one L after the other, you're just going to say, All right, I'm going to go with the tinfoil hat guys now. Yeah. Um, and the, the thing we mentioned earlier too, the, the digital age and the, the pace and rapidity at which information can move the liquidity of ideas. Like it, it's a lot of thing, a lot of bullshits getting exposed, right? Like seed oils. This is a major thing, right? Seed oils are in every food with a label. Like every food with a label, basically, in the United States at least, maybe not so much internationally. Not, I mean, again, not 100%, but let's say 99% of foods with a label have seed oils in them. And seed oils are like toxic sludge for human beings. Well, thank God for social media exposing that and bringing that to the surface. And now I have an app on my phone that's called Seed Oil Scout. It tells me which restaurants in town use seed oils and don't. Um, you know... And that's, that's a social media thing. Uh, the ancestral diets, you know, the carnivore diet, all these other things. People are just figuring out that things like the government food pyramid were total bullshit. So I do think it's only a matter of time before this illusion of fiat currency and central banking is dissipated as well. I don't know if just the digital age is going to solve that for us. Like, because there's some people that just don't want to spend the time learning or, or doing the homework, um, even though the information's out there and it's abundant and it's largely free. But I think when you combine that liquidity of ideas and information with the pain that's coming, right? The inflationary pain, all the capital controls and other duct tape that that bureaucrats will put on this system to try to keep it intact. Like this, the combination of those two things is going to drive us towards a tipping point, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with um, I agree with that. That the, the the kind of two things like the the tools being available and then the pain that's that's present. Um, like other I, other thoughts I had about you know what is available nowadays that wasn't in the past is um, I mean I think we're kind of in a golden age of television and like you know there's just Hollywood is kind of dead you know like there's so many movies that are being produced in so many different ways and tv series and then additionally documentaries there's just like so many well-produced documentaries with all these streaming platforms um so that um things that seemed fringe in the past like now you can actually watch a very well-produced documentary that presents a certain viewpoint and you see the people talking and then additionally the the podcast like that's kind of like the golden age of radio all of a sudden what we're doing now i mean mm -hmm. people can see our faces they can they kind of like it's easy to like read an article where there's like a little sneer about like oh this guy he's like really cookie and he believes this versus seeing the guy talk for two hours you know and and like making up your own mind and that it's almost like i feel like joe rogan like epitomizes that mm. like he really brought a lot of ideas that were on the fringes and kind of made them all of a sudden just normal to talk about it doesn't mean you have to agree but at least it's part of the public conversation um and then i think that in terms of pain i think it was no coincidence that friedrich hayek won the nobel prize for economics in in 1974 it's when the inflation started kicking in 
uh, all of a sudden there was a lot more interest in, in classical liberal ideas. Uh, and I'm sure in the 1930s as well, I mean, the big danger was, you know, the Bolsheviks and the red, the red scare and, and, um, and, and all kinds of economic uh, uh, just, you know, horrible things that were happening around the world. And all of a sudden, of course, there's more populism. But then on the other hand, there is a kind of counter movement. And I think Bitcoin definitely fits in that counter movement of like, all right, so, um, yeah, we can try and, you know, grab whatever we need and, and, and agree with Marx. But if we want a long term future for our kids, you know, well, what are some. What are some more reasonable things that are more likely to result in peace and uh, prosperity? So, yeah, I definitely see all those ingredients just right now. I, I think I looked it up recently. Uh, the interest for Austrian economics actually up in the last few years, uh, significantly up. And again, it's not all of a sudden. I remember we translated um, what has government done to our money? That little tiny Rothbard book where he just like nails it he he just explains it very briefly what what the fiat system is about and um written in the 60s somewhere we translated it we published it was really a nice slick little book in dutch and we couldn't we couldn't get the bookstores to carry it because people weren't interested this is like 2010 or something and uh, and so and now I go back in Belgium and I see the road to the uh, the road to serfdom in translation in a mainstream bookstore uh, for sale in Belgium. Hmm. So you know they just um, when people feel pain they look for solutions. Yeah, well said. Yeah, and truth. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you brought it up, Tur, this idea of a more peaceful world, more prosperity. People in Bitcoin kind of talk about that, how Bitcoin could kind of bring about um, more world peace. And it's like a really big idea. And I, I was wondering if you guys maybe think that's true. Do you think that, you know, Bitcoin standard could result in a more peaceful world? Do, do we, Robert? Do we think that's true? <laughs> maybe we're just saying it like, oh, it sounds yeah, nice. I, it does. Yeah, it sounds nice. I mean, like I, it seems obvious to me and I, Maybe I'm just overly simplifying, and please tell me if I am, but I, here's how I typically explain it. I try to make it very simple. It's like there's two ways to acquire wealth in the world. One is making, one is taking, right? You can make something, which is you work, you create, you plant the garden, you build the business, you construct the asset, whatever it is. Uh, also in the making category is trade with other people, right? You could make something and trade it with other people to get different things. And that's, that's capitalism, right? That's free market capitalism. Uh, it's the social cooperation under the institution of private property, right? So it's like you keep what you earn. I keep what I earn and we can freely trade everything. That's one way to create wealth and acquire wealth in the world. So far as I know, the only alternative to making is taking, right? You just go and use coercion or force or violence to seize or confiscate someone else's hard-earned asset, whatever it may be. And so if that's accurate, then all we should really focus on to improve civilization and to improve social cooperation and the division of labor and wealth creation is making taking, not, let me see, uh, what's a different word for making? facilitating a world where taking is made as expensive and risky as possible. 
right? So make it very difficult to steal from people or make it risky. You know, that's kind of what the rule of law is supposed to do. It's like, you don't go and just steal cars. Well, maybe if you're in San Francisco, you do, but typically you don't go break into people's cars willy nilly because you know, there are repercussions for things like that. So what is that doing? It's, it's, it's imputing a cost to would be takers, right? That they, maybe they won't take that risk. It's changing their expected value calculation of taking. So what is Bitcoin? Well, it just makes taking very expensive and difficult, if not impossible, if you custody it properly. And this applies at every scale, right? This applies to the guy trying to break into your house and steal your money, right? If you've got cash in a desk drawer, he's probably going to take it. But if you've got Bitcoin in a multi-sig, he's probably not going to figure that shit out, right? It's pretty complicated, especially if you put it in the right protocol, et cetera. Um, it also applies at the nation state level, right? If Germany invades Poland and they seize the gold out of their central bank, well, if we're on a Bitcoin standard and Poland's got all that in a big multi-sig, Germany's going to have a much harder time seizing the gold. So we're talking about reducing the carrot, I think, to coercion, compulsion, and violence. That seems to me a pretty obvious shift in the incentive landscape towards peaceable human interaction and away from war and violence. Well said. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think that it makes me think of the socialist calculation debates, which, you know, back in the late 1800s when Marx came with this, you know, amazing idea or whatever, at least it was a novel idea kind of like of, um, you know, maybe, maybe property isn't all, isn't all that great. Maybe we should Mm. just kind of gather all the goods in society and have the benevolent, which is, it's, it's, that's a really old, that's Plato basically, you know, have the benevolent dictators decide on what, you know, what to do with it. And so um, what Mises argued, and this is then in the early 1900s, what he started arguing is that even if you appoint like the most benevolent angelic, um, dictators to, to decide what to do with all the productive goods in society, they, even with the best of intentions, they couldn't calculate what is needed. And that's where, uh, like Leonard Reed comes in. He wrote this little book called I pencil where he, he just looks at the simple pencil. It's like, all right, let's, let's look at this and see how it's put together. And like the graphite maybe comes from Italy somewhere. And then there is some paint in there. And and that has like 10 different components who are sourced from all around the world. And then in the back, there's like a little bit of um, uh, Arab gum. And, you know, what is what where that comes from, you know, the Middle East somewhere, potentially. Uh, um, And then there's a bit of metal. And so that was maybe dug out of the ground in Sweden and then they refined it. And then so magically this came all together in, um, in, in that one pencil. And so if, if you are, you know, you are the Marxist dictator, like how do you know to put all that together in this one pencil? And then also how do you know how many pencils the market wants Mm. and what colors of pencils and where the pencils should be delivered and, you know, and how to prioritize this delivery over that one. It's just all these questions. And that's what hard money allows. It's basically, it it allows the economic machine, the the free market machine to to efficiently calculate 
where goods should go in the economy because it allows the, every individual entrepreneur to decide whether or not this activity is profitable, which means that it's, it's on a net basis, it is what people want, or if he's turning at a loss, which means that it, it doesn't make sense to keep doing this. Um, and, and, and I think where Keynesians get it really wrong is they have that like metaphor of like the market is an engine. And if we just, mm-hmm. you know, pump more money in it, it's like oil, it's going to make it run better. It's like, no, no, what you're actually, what you're actually doing is the market is this calculator, mm-hmm. which is, you know, very, very efficient, incredibly complex, like way beyond any individual person's capacity. It's just all that communication that's happening. And, and if you throw in money, if you print money out of thin air, it's almost like every individual calculator that every entrepreneur has, you're like randomly adding and subtracting numbers. Like you're just making it more confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that in a nutshell is just a calculation debate. And so you could kind of go at it from the political angle. Like it doesn't make sense to have, you know, the dictators ruling society, but you can also look at the calculation debate from the money point of view, it's like, all right, well, if we agree that the free market is this, this incredibly complex computer, well, what kind of money is going to make it run the most efficiently? And, and, and that's hard money. Like you, you don't mess with the money supply and, um, you know, and, and that's when the, the organism is going to be the healthiest. No, I think it's so wonderfully said. I shout out I pencil, like one of the best essays ever. If yeah, you never read really it. Good. I mean, really it's good. it's almost like a meditative exercise so to good. read that, right? Yeah. It's you know, it's, really it's like I can explain the idea in a minute, but if you read it, it's like kind of like you get this like whoa, and that's like that any every item in your in your house, the same thing applies. Yeah. Like, it's so humbling. Yeah, it gives me like a reverence for the material reality we've surrounded ourselves with right the, um, the book rational optimist matt ridley does the same thing but he's talking about a computer mouse and it's just it's just if you haven't read it go read it it's very poetic and i think it'll give you a reverence for capitalism like there's no other solution to get this standard of living other than free trade and and sound economic calculation um and, and it also applies to every Che Guevara t-shirt and every like, you know, Marxist sticker on an iPhone. Like it's like everything, you know, like every, right? every human creation yeah. that you find valuable basically comes from this process. Yeah. Um, and I, I think on Marx, you know, he like, I don't know if he properly, I'm going to say this. I don't know if it's entirely correct, but I think he basically properly identified the problem or a problem, which is, you know, we had wealth inequality, not that wealth inequality is the problem. He saw some people with a lot and some people with a little, right? And he thought the abolition of private property could somehow resolve that. His prescription was the exact opposite of what we need, right? What you really need is super strong private property, and then you you maximize wealth creation. So that would be, you're never going to fix wealth inequality because people are just different, right? It's we have different skills, different circumstances, life paths, et cetera. But what you can optimize for is aggregate wealth creation. So even though we're going to be unequal in the distribution of wealth, we could create the most capital per person, right? The most wealth per capita. So it's like he kind of identified a problem that's that's real, um, but misprescribed the solution. Like he prescribed the abolition of private property when what we actually needed was much stronger private property, in my opinion. Um, and on money, you know, like it's, 
kind of tying this into eye pencil too, I guess it's so only with hard money or sound money, can we, we're basically extending human rationality into the material domain, right? That we can now price all these exchanges with one another. And, you know, Mises definition of a price is an exchange ratio basically expressed in money. So we're, we're comparing and contrasting all the results of human activity in a way that gives us a quantifiable input into that economic process, that economic calculator. And without those inputs, that calculator does not work, right? It, it breaks. And w when you're printing money, what are you doing? You're distorting those inputs, but you're also violating private property. So it's like you're, <laughs> this is why I call it monetary socialism. Like you're completely regressing down the scale, right? You're, you're, you're retarding economic calculation and you're stealing from savers. So you're moving away from eye pencil and towards um, Soviet Russia, basically. And it just blows my mind that more people aren't, aren't keyed in on that. Um, we need people to read stuff like eye pencil and Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe. Um, so I guess I'm excited to hear that, that Austrian economics is, is gaining in popularity. Make, makes me think of uh, Boris Sidis. He, he's a, he was like a contemporary of William James. And if you read his books, he's always like, he, he, he was um, uh, a, a Russian uh, emigrant and uh, was like, in prison in Russia for three years and was very much against collectivism. And he keeps talking about the Philistine versus genius. And so like, I'm just like, there's so much Philistine stuff happening that is, uh, you know, like seed oils and fiat money. And maybe we should bring back that word. <laughs> it's just like, kind of like that, like primitivism and like the, 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 you know, it's almost like, it's not really like cunning evil. It's just more like being a brute, you know, that, yeah. that's what he meant. Mm. Not only yeah. does the, well, go, go breathe though. I was just going to say, it kind of reminds me of sophistry versus philosophy too, as you just get, you end up with a lot of these sophists that are just saying whatever needs to be said to win the argument versus the philosopher that's actually pursuing truth in earnest. Um, yeah. The, you know, fiat currency slides the world, towards sophistry hmm. so it's like the real the manipulation of money by these central banks distorts the price signals makes it difficult to coordinate economic activity which we talked about but one thing i learned from reading your work breed love is you take it a step deeper and it actually distorts like the perceptions of the economic actors and their goals and it's difficult to know the real wants of society when they're manipulating society. Right. Um, I just always thought that was like a fascinating idea. If you just take it a step further, it, it, it almost changes society at a more fundamental level of what we value when they distort the money. Um, yeah, there's, um, there's an experiment. I, I learned this from Jordan Peterson, actually, it's called the selective attention experiment. And they basically tasked these um, individuals with counting the number. They'd play a video for them. There's like two basketball teams, one in a, I think one in a black shirt, one in a white shirt. And they'd say, count the number of passes. You know, people are running all over the screen, passing the basketball back and forth. They say, count the number of passes of what, whichever team, white or black. It was like a 30 second video. And they would, you know, press play, run the thing. Um, people could pretty accurately count the passes. It's not too difficult, right? There's just kind of one basketball moving from teammate to teammate. And then at the conclusion of that experiment, they'd say, okay, 
You know, how many passes were there? Seven. Okay, that's correct. Now, did you notice the six-foot gorilla in the video? And like, no shit, I think like 70 or 80% of people, like this is a very repeated experiment. It's started like been going on since the 70s, something like that. Uh, if people don't know about <laughs> the selective attention experiment, they consistently to the tune of 70 or 80% don't see this six foot gorilla walk into the middle of the frame, flail his arms back and forth for like eight or 10 seconds and then walk off the frame. And so the, the, the learning from this is that your goals determine actually what you see in the world, not just like how you see or how you relate to the world. But like when you get, you get on a goal oriented path, like you block out other things, right? You're just eye on the ball, literally eye on the ball in this case, um, to the point where you miss a giant fucking gorilla walking into the middle of the screen and shaking his arms back and forth. So, you know, if you twist, you know, if you can just print money, if you're the fed or a government, you can just print money and say, go do this, go do that. Like to what extent are you manipulating people's actual motivations, right? They, they don't, they're not even free to discover what's meaningful to them. They're just kind of, you know, doing their job. And, and what do you hear in all of these atrocities when, you know, how did you, when they asked these German soldiers, like, how did you gas the Jews? Like, how did you overcome that resistance in yourself to do that? And they say, Oh, I'm just doing my job. Um, not to make it like too extreme of an example, but I'm just saying it's like, I don't know. It's an open question. How much does money printing manipulate what we actually see and then what we actually do in the world? Um, I definitely think it's a net negative. I don't know to what extent, but that's where I got that, that kind of line of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think it's, it's true. I think, uh, you know, if, if you can, uh, distort people's perception of value, then you can that that relates to everything like people like value is kind of the base layer the base layer for judgment mm-hmm. um and so yeah you're almost like if you can print money you're like in charge of a gaslight factory like you can just kind of you know willing and of course you don't know what kind of in what kind of ways the perception is like you know if you ingest a lot of seed oil like you don't necessarily know what's going to go wrong in your body but something will eventually um get big yeah, it, it. I mean, lately, I, I still haven't like nailed it. I, I still feel like I'm, but I've, I've been wondering even about things like music. Um, you know, people people say like, oh, you know, there wasn't anything like the '60s, and you know, like you know, as if as if the musicians of the '60s were so amazing. And then there was another like, you know, uh, if you look at like the most liked songs over the last sixty years, there was like a big spike in the late '60s, early '70s, and then another smaller but still substantial spike in like the early '90s. Um, and so it's like you can be like, well, you know, whatever. People just learned. There were more people in bands learning how to play, and that's why you know. Mm. But I, I'm starting to think there's a lot more to do with like the audience and like the you know, because people get so energized when they're interacting with an audience that's really tuned in. And like, if you see these audiences of the 60s, like, it's not just girls fainting. It's like, it was almost like, you know, this people were so um, enchanted because not just because they loved the music, but because there was meaning in the music. Mm-hmm. Like it was, there was kind of a rebellious atmosphere. It was about civil rights. There was just so much going on back then. And then I think in the early nineties, part of that was kind of an outburst of freedom of speech. All of a sudden, like the eighties were a lot about censorship. Like if you see like, 
you know, Frank Zappa and other people like testifying in, 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 in the, in, in all kinds of hearings because they wanted to ban certain, you know, just music based on lyrics. They wanted to ban is the eighties was pretty dark. And, and of course the, there was the atomic bomb scare and the cold war, which came really close. Mm. Uh, and so I think the nineties with the internet were just, just kind of like elated. So, so I'm starting to feel that, the musicians were great and have been great in this past 40 years because a lot of them have lived through all of it, right? So it's like, but I think there's some kind of alchemy that happens when, when an, and you see it, I think, in the Bitcoin space where people get really riled up. And so they stimulate the artists to, to give the best, you know, you, you hear these songs that have like three minutes, like a Pink Floyd song was like, I was listening to it, it had like a five minute musical introduction. Mm -hmm. And then the, the conclusion was like a four minute song. It's like, people don't do that if, you're, if your audience is zonked out and, and they're dissociated and they're gaslit. You don't feel inspired to really, you know, give the very best of yourself. So I, I don't know, it's just something that I've been thinking of lately that, you know, I'm like watching like Rick Beato's latest video on like, um, mm -hmm the top 10 most popular streaming songs today. And like of one of them at the end, the best thing that he can say is like, it was like a Miley Cyrus thing. He's like, Oh, this is, this is actually a song. <laughs> All the rest were just kind of like, there was just so just tunes. Like they weren't even, there wasn't a decent structure to it. Decent melody, just nothing. So and anyway, I'm just saying like, I'm, I'm starting to feel less like I'm judging the artists, but more that like there's this kind of um, just a cultural thing that sometimes happens that just uh, stimulates people to give the best of themselves back to the audience. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, we sound like maybe a bunch of crazy money nerds, but I think suffice it to say that manipulating money – affects a lot of dimensions of human life like we don't know to what extent and which ones necessarily but you have next time you talk to will cole over at unchained you have to have him tell you his story about he was having a cabin built in wyoming i think i forget where he owns a cabin and he was saying he bought he was working with a contractor was helping him build the cabin he went and bought a bunch of tools and brought them back and the guy's like oh no 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 these aren't going to do these tools were made in the 1990s. You have to get the craftsmen that are 1971 or before. Those are the only tools that like have high in, in, uh, structural integrity or whatever. So it's like, is that really a thing too? Like, is it we went off the gold standard and like the integrity of tools went downhill? Like, I find myself buying stuff now and like I get defective products left and right. Like, it seems like more than ever the past few years. And was that because we just had this pulse of money printing? I don't know. I mean, we're we're definitely pumping entropy into this into that economic computer, that calculator we described. So, how many things does that derange? I don't know. Um, well, you definitely see it in the housing space, where like you know the, the main the main builders. Sorry, I, if there's more, I no, no, that's it. That you finish. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just, and I'm sure you agree. Like you know the. If money is very cheap, if interest rates are artificially low, which is that that's how you create inflation, you, you make it artificially cheap, then um, the main people that are going to be bidding on plots of land and, and, and building materials are no longer going to be generational wealth, you know, that has a, a bunch of land that they're slowly trying to add value to and, and they, you know, 
if you, I'm not saying this is the the, the ultimate society, but you know, you know Ed, Edwardian, Elizabethan, um, Great Britain was pretty prosperous, and I believe only 10% of the population actually owned their own home. Mm. You know, people would save in money, they would they have a life insurance, and then and then physical property like buildings were built by yeah you could call it elites you know but by by uh people who were entrepreneurial or generational wealth and so they would build buildings that would last a long time because they just expected it to stay in the family whereas you know it's a big contrast and there's lots of nuance but generally speaking if the money is artificially cheap all of a sudden people who have very little means of their own can lever up and that's what all these real estate guys tell each other. And 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 the new audience, they've been, I mean, I, I was checking out uh, meetups here in Austin and like 70% of them are still to this day, real estate meetings on like how to flip houses. And so you get these people. And again, I'm not, I'm not blaming them. It's just the incentives work that way. So for very cheap, you can, you can uh, buy a property, build a house and then resell it because the consumers also have cheap credit. So they get to buy it real quick. And, and so people end up living in a house for like three, four, five years, and then they flip it again. And so why would you do anything better than just building some cardboard that looks good on Instagram versus, you know, like the wall that I'm looking at behind you, Sam, like, you know, just, you know, maybe like structural masonry or something that will is maybe 20%, 30% more expensive, but that will still be standing a hundred years from now. There's just that incentive is lot. So I totally agree with Robert. Like, you know, we, we, we cannot fathom the ways in which um, cheap money and, uh, and, and, and the fiat system has changed society. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah. Once you see it, you can't really unsee it too. Yeah. Bitcoin definitely does that. Yeah. Um, just to which finish. is a good thing. It's, yeah, you know, which is we're, a good thing. Yeah. transition the world to a better system and so it's a good thing if you can't unsee it it's a good yeah. thing but i do find myself being um i don't know seeing things that other people don't see people start to think you're like oh you're just reading into it too much like no i see like product inferior quality all around me that did not used to exist but yeah, you know, it just right. kind of might make you a bit of a social pariah is all i'm saying <laughs> so you should probably hang out with bitcoiners more yeah I mean, that's why, like, to me, that's why I chose, like, the megaphone over the trying to micro-convince people because I actually let that go for many, many years. It just kind of, and and, and just, you know, I, it was hard to, to make that transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's kind of like, yeah, it's people, I, I have noticed people will come to Bitcoin when they're ready. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it takes five years. Sometimes it takes a week. Sometimes it takes more than 10. I mean, who knows how long. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, uh, I feel like that's the most insidious part of inflation is the decrease in the quality of goods. You know, you can feel it. It's hard to quantify, but you can just see it everywhere. Um, yeah. Let's, uh, you know, just one more question for you guys. I do, I, I want to get your thoughts on just this recent price action of, um, you know, we've come off the lows around 15 and we're at 30 now. It's up like 80 something percent on the year. And, um, in the midst of this banking crisis. And so, Tur, I, I saw a tweet. You said you didn't think we'd see 20K uh, ever again. So I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on this rally, um, what you guys are thinking. Sure, yeah. I'm just pulling up the chart here. Yeah, 29,340 is where we're at right now. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, the bull market has started again. I, I, I you know, I, I really think we've seen the capitulation. Like the the big one was just these bailouts. Like that is that is we're gonna look back at that. It's like that was the pivot. Bitcoin jumped from like what eighteen to twenty six in a day or something. This is crazy move. That was on the day of the bailouts. Um, yeah. I mean, to me, it's it's not to say that I'm, you know, of course we can pull back a little and we can go back to maybe like, you know, what is it, 23,000 and whatever. Like maybe there'll be another scare. Maybe like a big exchange is going to all of a sudden go belly up or who knows. Uh, but to me, the, the bull market has started. And um, I um, later this month, actually, I, I, there's something that is going to communicate my bullishness. Oh, nice. <laughs> that will come out. Yeah, and then and then I've been looking at the uh, just kind of, you know, because I've been looking at it for a long time, <laughs> but looking at the Ethereum Bitcoin charts, you know, and yeah. that's starting to like look pretty toppy to me. Um, and to me, that's the the canary in the coal mine for the entire crypto space. Uh, and I think we've been saying it all along, like they're dinos, they're they're decentralized in name only, and now the government is actually going after it. And I'm not saying I'm all in favor of that, and I'm sure there'll be lots of collateral damage with these these lawsuits and fines and everything. But but I do think that fraud should be you know pursued and 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 um, investigated. And I think a lot of these crypto coins are you know built on lies. And uh, just like with the dot com crisis, like certain survivors will will emerge and become huge like Apple today and others will just fizzle and die like Yahoo, you know, places like that. And there were a lot of scams that went to zero. So anyway, to me, that's almost like the bigger underlying story is that I think that the, you know, Bitcoin dominance is really going to march forward. And I'm kind of happy. There's always going to be scams, of course, but at least I'm happy that there's going to be at least a bit less confusion in the next year or two that that Bitcoin really is the safe haven and you can just happily forget about the other 11,000 coins. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to that day as well. Um, I, you know, I just think it's great that, that we have this irrepressible barometer for all the bullshit in the world, right? So you see yeah. Bitcoin actually functioning as a safe haven in this this case or at least maybe not a safe haven a full reserve bank it's like once we saw that the printer is coming again bitcoin popped so i'm not much for short-term price predictions i have no idea like it's one thing i've learned about bitcoin price it's like always expect the unexpected just have no idea which way it's going to go um but to at least see that it's move. It's trending positively when everything else in the world seems to be trending negatively. I think is a is a good sign. Um, and yeah. yeah, I don't. You know, I'm just frankly happy to have Bitcoin because if all we had were dollars and banks right now, I don't know what the. I guess I'd be burying gold, gold in my bugs. backyard. We'd yeah. all be gold bugs <laughs> because it's so abysmal. Like the counterparty risk and the the surveillance, and it's just complete nonsense um so thank god for bitcoin thank god for bitcoin well thanks guys yeah, yeah turd you got anything else yeah. uh just that i am reminded of um uh bill miller i think in 2021 he had this note in his uh his letter to his investors saying warren buffett famously called bitcoin rat poison he may well be right bitcoin could be rat poison and the rat could be cash <laughs> 
I love that. Anyway, I, I just, I that. yeah, this is, this is the beginning. We had the longest bear market um, in, in the history of Bitcoin in the past two, three years. And so I think this could set us up for the longest bull market. I think, I think it's going to be Bitcoin fever. I think people are going to just be stunned at how these moves are, 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 and they're going to be chasing it and they're going to not understand what's happening. And, and, um, it's, it's, I mean, not to, it's exciting, but also, I mean, buckle up. Cause I think it's going to be pretty stressful as well. Like seeing these giant moves and, you know, there's going to be 50% crashes thrown in there. And, you know, I think it's going to be wild the next two, three years, really wild. And of course I'm, I'm happy because, I think it, the world needs more Bitcoin or the world needs Bitcoin and more people for more people to understand and use it. And luckily, the price is kind of a it's a mechanism that allows people to discover it. If the price goes up, a lot more people will pay attention. Absolutely. Our downloads on the show are highly correlated to the Bitcoin price. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. Same with my followers yeah. and all that. Yeah. Yep. Now I'm bullish. Thanks, Ter. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, and thanks guys. This was a great convo and kind of out of time right now, but it sounds like both of you guys have pieces coming out soon. So keep an eye out for that listeners. I always read what these guys put out cause you guys put out fantastic pieces all the time. So thanks for coming on the show. Where, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm at what is money podcast.com and at breedlove 22 on Twitter. Yeah, for me, there might be some some uh, announcements later in the year. But for now, it's just Google my name and my Twitter account is the most active. So just go there. Right on. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. You guys have a great night. Okay. If you care about your financial future, you need to check out a couple of our offerings, including Swan IRA and Swan Private. Swan Private is our white glove concierge service where you get a trusted partner on your Bitcoin journey. We offer all kinds of education and research projects as well as exclusive events to our Swan Private customers. Check it out today at swan.com slash private. Also, Swan IRA. Swan IRA is the best way to gain exposure to real Bitcoin in a tax advantage account like a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, or rolling over your 401k. So if that interests you, check it out at swan.com slash IRA today.